How many of you remember uh, some key events that took place a quarter of a century ago? Remember the fall of the Berlin Wall, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, Manuel Noriega in Panama, and what happened to him, the Persian Gulf War to retake Kuwait. All these happened within a four-year span. Remarkable when you think back about how important those events were in history today, and they all took place during the presidency of George Herbert Walker Bush. To help us understand this era better, Barbara Perry, a professor and scholar of the presidency as well as the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, is with us today. She serves as a senior fellow and co-chair of the Presidential Oral History Program at UVA's Miller Center. As part of her extensive research on the American presidency, she has interviewed prominent members of previous administrations and is directing the Edward M. Kennedy Oral History Project. She has 11 books, including two that are over there on the table for purchase after the program, uh, 41 Inside the Presidency of George Herbert Walker Bush, Rose Kennedy, The Life and Times of a Political Matriarch, Jacqueline Kennedy, the First Lady of the New Frontier, and she's a frequent commentator in public affairs for national and international media and can be followed at www.amazon.com slash author slash Barbara Perry. Shouldn't be too hard to remember. Uh, Barbara earned her PhD at the University of Virginia. That's why she's in orange and blue today. Um, but probably a somewhat closely held secret. Um, she did get her MA in political science from Oxford University, but she got her undergraduate degree at, at some place in Louisville called, I think, the University of Louisville. Um, so my guess is today she probably has mixed emotions about the football game. Uh, but without any further delay, Barbara, please join us. Well, good morning to everyone. Thank you for being here today. So uh, I, I claim both. I claim both states. And Louisville is located in Jefferson County, so I have that as well going for me. Uh, but this is about the only event that would get me out of bed on a Saturday morning, especially a rainy Saturday morning. And I thank you all for doing the same. <laughs> So we are going to uh, start with a, a conversation, as we say today. And Althea, is this just ready to go with the first click? Okay. All right. You have seen that. Uh, so I want to just mention to you um, how this project uh, came to be. The George H.W. Bush, or as the Bush family started calling him, Bush 41, to distinguish him from his son, the 43rd president, so we call him Bush 43. But the Miller Center, which was founded back in the 1970s uh, by Mr. Miller, who had a particular interest in the presidency and the governance of America uh, at a very difficult time during the Vietnam War and then during Watergate. And so the Miller Center, which is located, as probably many of you know, just off of Old Ivy Road, across Caddy Corner from the IVN and just behind the baseball stadium, uh, is in this beautiful antebellum mansion. And the very core programs of the Miller Center are, revolve around the presidency. And the two programs are the recordings program, whereby our scholars on the presidency uh, annotate and edit the recordings of presidents that go, but these are presidential recordings from usually the Oval Office or their private offices, and they go back all the way to FDR and come up through Richard Nixon. And I'm sure most of you will know why Richard Nixon was the last president to make <laughs> recordings in the Oval Office and other of his offices. <clears throat> but 
as you can imagine, especially for Kennedy, who started recording during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and then Lyndon Johnson, who not only recorded his meetings, but his phone conversations, and then Nixon. Uh, we have vast, vast archives, and those are available to you on the Miller Center website at www.millercenter.org. The program that I came uh, to be part of four years ago after teaching for 21 years at Sweet Bar College, and I will never have to worry about whom to pull for in a football game. Uh, uh, so that worked well for me, uh, but I decided to come to the Miller Center in 2010 to be part of the oral history program. That program goes back to the Ford administration. So for every presidency from Gerald Ford through Bush 43, we have done what really is considered the official oral history of that presidency. If the president will allow, we interview him. So we started that process with Jimmy Carter. Uh, we are going to be interviewing Bill Clinton very soon. Uh, we spent a week in Jackson Hole this past June with Dick Cheney, had 25 hours of recorded conversations with him. You can imagine that that it was very interesting. Uh, and we are about two-thirds of the way through the Bush 43 project. And being the nonpartisans that we are, we are already reaching out to the Obama administration and hoping that they will follow in the footsteps of past presidents and bring their project to the Miller Center as well. Those transcripts, those written transcripts of all of those interviews that have been released to the public are also on our website as well as the websites of the presidential libraries for each individual president. So having said that, um, I thought today would be a perfect time to discuss George Bush on the 25th anniversary uh, year of his beginning of his presidency in 1989. And as Tom said, it was a very, very important presidency, even only one term, but so much happened, particularly in foreign affairs during that time. And I think now people are reconsidering uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. Um, he was not given the opportunity to have a second term, unfortunately for him, and perhaps even for the country, some might say. And so how are we to look at him 25 years on, a quarter century on? I think now people are, are seeing him uh, as he exits the scene, but still is um, very lively, um, has a mobility issue, so he's getting around in a wheelchair and wearing his famous loud socks, which I just love, because you can see I tend to like exciting footwear. And so I think uh, he and I would get along very well in that. But most presidents, uh, as they leave office, but particularly once they've been in, out of office a number of years, begin to rise in the approval ratings. And that is the case with George Herbert Walker Bush. But there's something unusual about his approval ratings. His approval ratings began to rise before he was even out of office, and yet he had lost for re-election. So if you look at the statistics, the actual approval rating of George Bush 41, going into the 1988, uh, excuse me, 1992 election was 34 percent. It's hard to win re-election with an approval rating of 34 percent right before your re-election campaign. By the time he left a few months later, he was already up to 56 percent approval rating. So I wanted to put the question to you, why? Why do you think even just a few months after he was defeated soundly 
by Bill Clinton in 1992 that his approval ratings, that Bush 41's approval ratings began to rise. And I'm going to call on a fellow Louisvillian, Helm Dobbins, uh, who is a UVA uh, alum, because he worked in the campaign for George Bush when George Bush was running for the Republican presidential nomination uh, in 1979 and 80 against Ronald Reagan, who, of course, ended up with that uh, nomination. So just in a word or two, Helm, why do you think this is the case? Thank you. I would remind everyone about the 92 election that there was a very formidable third-party candidate by the name of Ross Perot. And I don't know any political pundit who has analyzed that race that would disagree with, with this statement that Ross Perot cost George Bush that election uh, by taking away about, I believe it was 13 or 14 percent of the popular vote. Even he didn't win one electoral vote, but he got 19 percent of the popular. But if he had not been in that race, uh, you know, most said George Bush would have had his second term, and whether Bill Clinton would have ever made it to the White House is is open to debate. But but anyway, thank you. Yes, thank you, Helm. So that is so true that that was a very unusual race. Most of the time in American politics, as you well know, it's our two parties for all their strengths and weaknesses, uh, and and usually that's it. When there's a third party, it's often very difficult uh, because that person will siphon off support. No doubt, Perot probably siphoned off some support for Bill Clinton as well. But most people think that it hurt George Bush primarily. But let's talk about uh, the reason that I think that his uh, popularity rose even after he had been defeated in the months following and before Bill Clinton took office. I think one of the, the, the soundest reasons to explain this phenomenon is that there, I, I believe, was there was some buyer's remorse setting in uh, after the 92 election. And I think people began to realize uh, Ross Perot had siphoned off some of that support and Bill Clinton, let's face it, was not the person in terms of character uh, that George H.W. Bush was. And as I like to put it, George H.W. Bush had the perfect presidential resume, especially in foreign affairs. If you just glance at this list, we know he was to the manor born, a uh, Connecticut family, born in Massachusetts, but uh, to the manor born Connecticut family, Greenwich, went to Andover. Uh, then after, immediately after Andover uh, en enlisted in the service in World War II, he became the youngest pilot uh, in the Navy. Uh, it was before his 19th birthday. He was um, actually had to bail out of his crippled plane uh, after an assault on Chichijima Island. Uh, he lost his two crewmates. Uh, he just had to parachute out into the South Pacific, uh, floated around in a raft for a number of hours before he was picked up by a submarine, a U.S. submarine, and saved. So he was a bona fide World War II hero, came back from the war, married his sweetheart, Barbara Pierce, Barbara Pierce Bush, uh, and then went on to Yale, where he was Phi Beta Kappa, captain of the baseball team. Uh, he had everything. Then he decided he was going to leave this to the manner of born background in Connecticut, and he was going to move to Texas. He was going to seek his own fortune with his new wife and his new baby, also called George Bush, George Walker Bush, who would become Bush 43, as we know. And so George H.W. Bush went into the oil business, and he was a success. 
He made his own fortune in the oil business. And then, like his father before him, Prescott Bush, who had been a U.S. senator, uh, George H.W. Bush became a congressman from Texas uh, and served there for four years. Uh, then he was on to be U.N. ambassador in the uh, 1970s, in, in the early 1970s. And then during Watergate, uh, Nixon asked him if he would take over the very difficult job of being head of the Republican Party. And always one to salute and say, yes, sir. George Bush moved on to be head of the Republican National Committee in the Watergate era. Then it was on to China. As we know, Richard Nixon opened up uh, our relations with China. We did not yet have an embassy there, so we didn't have an ambassador. But uh, George H.W. Bush became the U.S. liaison to China in the mid-70s. Then director of the CIA, of all things. Uh, in the mid to the late 70s, and then, as we say, he ran in 1979 uh, for the presidential nomination of the Republican Party, did not get it, but happily for him, became vice president of the United States and served with distinction in that role for all eight years of the Reagan administration. Now, one of my favorite George Bush lines is the following. You know, vice presidents uh, don't have a lot to do, typically. And sadly, they are a heartbeat away from the president, and that's their main role. Sudan is sort of like the runner-up to Miss America. If anything should happen to the president, uh, that person will rise to the presidency and, uh, and assume the Oval Office. But one thing that vice presidents are called upon to do with regularity is to go abroad and represent the United States at the funeral of leaders, of foreign leaders. And so George Bush, having this wonderful, I think, New England wry wit said, he described it as, you die, I fly. I will be there for you. And he and his wife said, but, okay, that's funny. Okay, George, that's really funny. But the good news is he got to meet all of these people from around the world who were the important leaders from around the world. So oftentimes other heads of state would be sent. Obviously he was not going to be meeting the person whose funeral he was attending, but he was going to be meeting the successor to that person. So I've included here just some of his foreign travels. He, there he is on, on the left-hand side with Barbara and uh, the head of state uh, of uh, India in one of his trips to India. And then with Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. And so all of this experience allowed George Bush, when he became President of the United States on, in his own right in 1989, at the very moment when the Cold War is ending and the Soviet Union is collapsing, he is the person who knows foreign policy, defense policy, intelligence, diplomacy inside and out, and he can pick up the phone and talk to any leader across the world and work together with them. Now. Let's talk just a little bit about this 1988 campaign in which he won and became President of the United States. Most people will remember this line, George Bush at the 1988 Republican National Convention held in New Orleans that year. In order to reach out to the Republicans in the Reagan camp, and of course that was a huge part of the Republican Party and still is, George Bush was a New England Republican. He was a moderate Republican. He's what some people call a country club Republican. He was a Sandra Day O'Connor type Republican. And so he had to prove to the Reagan Republicans that he was reaching out to them by picking one of their favorite topics, taxes. And so what does he do to also fight this strange word that was associated with him, a wimp? 
how can a World War II hero be a wimp? He wasn't, but by being vice president, he was painted with that brush. And so to show his credibility and his toughness, he said, the Democrats are going to send me these budget bills, and they're going to say, raise taxes, and I'm going to say no. And they're going to send the tax raise again, I'm going to say no. And finally, I'm going to say, read my lips, no new taxes. So he becomes Clint Eastwood suddenly. That was the, the Dirty Harry line from Clint Eastwood movies. Well, funny enough, we discovered in doing our oral histories of the Bush administration that James Baker told us, and nobody had known about this, and I have to say, when we released this, the, the Bush oral history in October of 2011, this made all the media outlets, all the media picked up on this. Coming out of this uh, convention in 1988, George Bush was behind Michael Dukakis by 18 percentage points. If the election had been held immediately after, Bush would have lost to Michael Dukakis by 18 percentage points. So the people working in the Bush campaign at the highest levels, including Jim Baker, said, you know, we need to be thinking in terms before they got to that convention, what, what kind of vice president should we have? And they said, you know what would really make a splash? Clint Eastwood. Now remember, by this time, Clint Eastwood is in politics, so they wouldn't have just been taking an actor. They would have been taking the mayor of Carmel in Northern California, who was very popular. Now you also might remember he didn't do so well in a recent convention uh, when he spoke, so uh, maybe that's just age having caught up with him. But they really, for a moment, seriously thought about it. Then they all had a good laugh and they moved on. So I say, Clint Eastwood for vice president, question mark. Then I say, Snoopy for president question mark and you might be wondering what that reference is to all you have to do is look down bottom right here Michael Dukakis in a tank Michael Dukakis wearing headgear of a tank person and he just looked a little bit like Snoopy remember when Snoopy would sit on his doghouse in the George Schultz cartoon with his pretending he was piloting a sop with camel against the Red Baron in World War One and he had his hat his aviator hat on Unfortunately for Michael Dukakis, he looked a little bit like Snoopy sitting on top of his doghouse. And so the Bush people ran that as part of their ad to say, do you think, given George Bush's experience, which I just showed to you, that we should trust Michael Dukakis, this liberal governor of Massachusetts, to be president of the United States? Michael Dukakis on foreign policy? No, we don't think so. More damaging to Dukakis was just above that. Michael Dukakis had signed on to a policy that was already ongoing when he became governor of Massachusetts, and that was a furlough program for uh, those who were incarcerated. And this was to try to rehabilitate those who had been incarcerated by giving them weekend furlough passes. Some might argue that that could be a good idea. Um, I think I would draw the line at murderers. Uh, but a murderer was released on a furlough, and his name was Willie Horton. And some of you may remember that name. A, an independent, but Republican group, but independent from the Bush campaign, put up an ad in which they showed Willie Horton, who looked like a very menacing African-American man, and they were able to say, this man was released under the Dukakis furlough program in Massachusetts, and this person did not return on Monday back to the jail, and instead went on a crime spree and murdered and raped and pillaged. 
that was discussed as Michael Dukakis on crime. This is in the 1980s. The crack wars are ongoing. Crime is rampant. People are worried and upset. They're for law and order. This is a very effective ad. And then the Bush campaign picks up that theme, and they use the theme as well. They don't show Willie Horton, but they use this furlough program to denounce Michael Dukakis on crime. So very, very important. And then you can see at the bottom there the um, landslide, the Electoral College landslide, over 400 uh, votes for uh, George H.W. Bush to the 111 for Michael Dukakis. So let's talk a little bit about Bush and his foreign policy, because that is what he will be remembered for. That is where he had his successes. But we also, I think, want to think about 25 years later, uh, what is the result of that foreign policy? And we can talk a little bit about the end. We'll save, oh, at least 10 minutes for some Q&A. Well, I was touring around the grounds this past summer with some cousins from uh, New Hampshire, one of whom is interested in coming to the university, and I, I had my first up-close and personal uh, link to this Berlin Wall exhibit. How many of you have seen the exhibit out here? Oh, not too many. You must go out and see that today. Maybe afterwards, before you go to the game, um, just walk out uh, over towards Alderman, and you'll see it just in front of Alderman. It is four panels from the actual Berlin Wall that have been painted artistically, as you can see, and it, we are very honored to have this at the university because on November the 9th, we will commemorate and celebrate the 25th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall with a week of wonderful events here, including as part of the annual Virginia Film Festival. So the fall of the Berlin Wall in November of 89, coming at the first year of the Bush administration, so important, as Tom mentioned, among the many of those accomplishments that you can in part give to uh, George H.W. Bush. Obviously, Ronald Reagan had a major role to play as well, and I would argue Democratic presidents too. It's not as if the Democratic presidents, oh, I could say people like John Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis were not fighting the Cold War as well. So that actually brought our parties together uh, in the Cold War era. So the Soviet Union disintegrates at the same time. The um, Iron Curtain shreds and the Eastern European bloc countries, uh, pe rather peaceably, except for Romania, uh, throw out their communist dictators. So they are no longer Soviet satellites. They become independent countries. Um, and Germany reunites. Just last night, reading back through the Bush oral history, I was reminded that we, we now just take that for granted. You know, it used to be that during the Olympics we'd have East Germany and West Germany, and I'd always get it. I was a swimmer in Louisville growing up, and I'd, so I'd always get a big kick out of the East German women swimmers. Looked a little bit different from the women swimmers in Louisville when I was growing up. We won't go there, but in any event, they did. Um, but no one in the world wanted Germany to reunite after the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union disintegrated. But George Bush said Germany has changed. Everyone was worried. Everyone remembered, of course, World War II and what happens when Germany is too powerful. And yet they did reunite, in part due to the pushing and prodding and the diplomacy of George Bush and that ability to pick up the phone and talk to leaders around the world and to reassure those leaders of the new democratic countries of the former Soviet bloc. I would also say to you that in the mid-1990s, I was a fellow at the U.S. Supreme Court. And one of my jobs was to speak to visitors 
visiting dignitaries and tell them about the U.S. Supreme Court, which is the jewel in our judicial crown, and it's viewed as a jewel throughout the world. And I can't tell you how many dignitaries came from the former Soviet bloc to hear about our Supreme Court and our judicial system, our independent judiciary and how it worked. And I was, it was really my honor to be able to tell them. But they were coming to the United States to learn about democracy. I think in this day and age when we are a bit down on our party system and a bit down on our uh, structures of government, we should remember that, that uh, as the, the famous saying goes, you know, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. Um, so moving along, we um, have mentioned the, the Noriega uh, uh, a roundup and the fact that in this hemisphere, George H.W. Bush thought that, um, that Noriega was absolutely up to no good when it came to the drug wars and that when uh, an American uh, service person was shot and killed in Panama that this was the, the reason to uh, go into Panama and round up Noriega and bring him back to the United States for trial. Uh, so he did that. Now keep that in mind as we go to the last point about the Middle East. And most people will remember George H.W. Bush for his very successful first Persian Gulf War, uh, Desert Storm, as the invasion was called, uh, that comes about in 1991 after Saddam Hussein had invaded uh, Kuwait. He had crossed over the border between Iraq and Kuwait and seized the oil fields. Now, I can remember people at the time saying, why do we care about that? You know, why would we fight that war? And I would say, do you ride a horse to work? Oh, how do you get to work? in a car and you probably drive quite a distance and you're going to need gasoline and you're going to need heating fuel for your house. And so most people were supportive of this effort to go in, sweep in and sweep the Iraqis back across the border, get them out of Kuwait. Unfortunately, malicious as they were, they set the oil fields on fire. But at least we had moved them out of Kuwait, returned Kuwait to their, uh, their government, and then we pushed the Iraqi soldiers on into Iraq and defeated Saddam's forces. Did George Bush go to Baghdad? Did he topple Saddam Hussein? I'm just pointing this out as a point of contrast to his son and his policy. He did not. And in our oral history, we show all of the people in the Bush administration saying to the president, that would probably not be a good idea because what will happen in Iraq after Saddam falls? And moreover, what will happen in that region when you don't have the counterpoise to Iran? what will happen and George Bush agreed and he said they're right we're not going to do it now they hoped that when the when Saddam's forces were routed that the Shias and the Kurds would unite to remove Saddam from power we know that did not happen we know that he then gassed the Kurds he created all sorts of humanitarian crises and much of this we are still dealing with today but in terms of a, a limited goal that George H.W. Bush had the fact that he had virtually the whole world on board. He had the whole world contributing resources. Um, there are some who point out we actually made money uh, in that war rather than uh, lose it by, by spending. And so if you'll note here, Dick Cheney on, on George H.W. Bush, this is from Dick Cheney's participation in the Bush 41 oral history, not our conversations with him this past June. But he makes the, this point, and I think it's a, it's a well-taken one. If you were, let's say, in Hollywood and you had to create the 
perfect commander-in-chief for the kinds of situations we faced in the late 80s and early 90s with the end of the Cold War, with the Iraq situation, it would be George Bush. It would be that resume that I presented to you um, a bit ago. Now, most people don't think of George Bush as much when they think about domestic policy. And yet, if you look at this litany of the policies which he supported, uh, it's quite impressive. And I think it's more liberal than people might anticipate. Um, for example, um, he had the Americans with Disabilities Act. That was an effort by uh, Edward Kennedy and Tom Harkin in the Senate, uh, but Bush signed that very happily into law in, in 1990. Um, we also know that he signed the Civil Rights Bill of 1991 after vetoing a previous version of it because he thought it was going to require affirmative action, and he was not in favor of that keep that thought in mind when we talk about Supreme Court appointments. Uh, but the worst decision that George Bush in his mind, I think, made for that time period in domestic policy was reneging on that 1988 promise of no new taxes. Now, people punished him for that, and that's why I say perhaps in his mind he, he would think, maybe I shouldn't have done it. On the other hand, it was a very statesmanlike thing for him to do. He worked with the Democrats. They came to a compromise. Yes, there would be some cuts in government programs. Yes, there would be some cuts in defense, but we were in a terrible budget situation, including uh, an, an increase in our deficits and debts. And so George Bush decided, I've got to renege. I've got to do this for the good of the country. I've got to come together with the other party. They want an increase in taxes. I'm going to have to do it. He took the heat for that for the rest of his presidency, and that would be another reason we would add to the list of why he lost in 1992. That so upset the, the Reagan Republicans. Um, so he also is, is quoted as saying, through his assistant to the legislative process, Fred McClure, um, that they didn't do a very good job in explaining to the American people why President Bush had to go back on that promise. And so in terms of imagery, in terms of press relations, reaching out to the public on that matter, um, even members of his own administration think that that, that was in error. I just want to do a little portion here on Bush's Supreme Court appointments because I think people don't think of that very often and because that's another area that I study. Um, I'm absolutely fascinated by the fact that in the 1988 convention in his acceptance speech, George H.W. Bush, as you will see this litany here, said that he would be the kind of Reagan conservative to appoint on those issues conservatives on the Pledge of Allegiance. Now you would say, I didn't even know there was a liberal or conservative position on the Pledge of Allegiance, doesn't everyone just as a school child say the Pledge of Allegiance? Well, you right, remember in 1988 that there was an issue about that. There are some religious groups, for example, that do not want to say the Pledge because they believe it is uh, praising a graven image and that's against their religious beliefs. And even the U.S. Supreme Court in, in the 1940s, uh, after first proclaiming that every school child in a public school had to say the Pledge of Allegiance, three years later switched course and said, no, it's actually a violation of those children's free speech rights because if free speech is truly free, it's not only freedom to speak, it's freedom not to speak. 
The government cannot coerce someone against religious principles to speak. So that actually became an issue because Michael Dukakis was on the liberal side of that. He was a member of the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, and they supported those who did not want to say the pledge. So you can imagine that that kind of patriotic symbolism was top on the list and top in the kinds of speeches that were given and tops in the kinds of, of ads that were given. So on down the line, school prayer, affirmative action, etc. Bush was making the case he would be just like Reagan and he would appoint conservatives, particularly to the Supreme Court, on each of those issues. So what does he do when he gets his first opportunity? Right out of the box in 1990, uh, William Brennan, liberal lion of the Supreme Court since 1956, age catches up with him, he has a slight stroke that year, and he's told by his doctors he should retire. So the word comes to the Bush administration, and he puts his key advisors on it. John Sununu, the former governor of New Hampshire, was his chief of staff. Uh, he has Boyd and Gray, his White House counsel, working on it. Uh, he has Dick Thornburg, his uh, attorney general, and Dan Quayle, his vice president, begins to work on it because Dan Quayle had been in the Senate. Where do... Uh, confirmations happen, but in the U.S. Senate. So those four men get together and they start to talk about which person would be best, and they narrow it down to a couple of people, including David Souter, not a very well-known individual. He had served on the New Hampshire Supreme Court, and you might say, oh, I bet that Sununu brought his name into the mix. Actually, it was Warren Rudman, the then senator from New Hampshire, who was a, a mentor to David Souter. And he said to the president, you will really like this guy. You are so alike. He's sort of a quiet, witty, brilliant New Englander. He's a Republican. He is a Rhodes Scholar, Harvard undergrad, Harvard Law. You've just appointed him to the First Circuit, but he'll be great on the Supreme Court. And Bush and Souter get together and they hit it off. These two quiet, witty, bright Republicans from New England. And it goes on to be the case that if you remember Karnak the Magnificent from Johnny Carson in The Tonight Show, that remember Karnak would divine the answers to the sealed questions that had been kept in a mayonnaise jar on Funkin Wagnall's porch, according to Ed McMahon, and he would hold to his head the sealed envelope and give the answer to the question without knowing what the question was. So as this is placed on the internet is, what was the biggest mistake that the suitors, Mr. and Mrs. Souter made? And the answer was David. They produced David Souter. Now you say, well, what was wrong with that? Well, because as John Sununu pointed out to us in the oral history, you interview these people for the Supreme Court and you think that you agree with them and that they agree with you, and then they get on the Supreme Court and they are completely independent. And so John Sununu said to us, to this day, anytime I go to a Republican event, somebody comes up to me and, metaphorically speaking, hits me over the head with a David Souter two by four because they say, what were you thinking? He became one of the most liberal members of the U.S. Supreme Court. This is also one of the issues for George Bush in 1992. He's always straddling that divide between the New England old school moderate Republicans and the Ronald Reagan Republicans, the Sun Belt Republicans, the Western Republicans. Beyond that, he gets another seat that comes available the very next year in 1991, and that is the Thurgood Marshall seat. Well, now, 
he's up against a problem. That is considered the, the African-American seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. Thurgood Marshall, lion of the civil rights movement, had been the first and only African-American to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. It was hard for George Bush to find a conservative African-American qualified to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court, but he set his team to look for one. And he even said to Th Dick Thornburg, you know, maybe it's time, if we can't find a conservative African-American judge, why don't we think of Hispanic? George Bush is sort of ahead of the curve on that. He's from Texas. He knows how important it would be to court, pardon the pun, to court the Hispanics into the Republican Party. So he says to his team, look, try to find a Hispanic for me. And they discover that the Hispanic judges are no more seasoned than Clarence Thomas. And so they choose Clarence Thomas rather than a Hispanic. Now, talk about straddling the line between conservative and moderate. They hit a home run with Clarence Thomas. He turns out to be one of the most conservative members of the U.S. Supreme Court to this day. He was very young when appointed, just in his 40s. And you also, I'm sure, remember some of the controversy that surrounded him regarding one Anita Hill. He managed to make it through that controversy and by the slimmest of margins was confirmed by the United States Senate. And when, when you, I say conservative, if we were following the Johnny Carson uh, style, it would be, how conservative is he? Clarence Thomas is so conservative that he does not believe that the U.S. Bill of Rights, the guarantees in the U.S. Bill of Rights apply to state action any one of the 50 states and its action towards us as individuals. And that is taken now for granted at the U.S. Supreme Court uh, going back to the early part of the 20th century. So he sort of has a pre-Civil War view of the U.S. Bill of Rights. He's also against affirmative action, which many find ironic, since in a sense, affirmative action put him on the Supreme Court, or as some people describe it, oh, that's all well and good for him to be against uh, affirmative action, as if it's, he got on the ship and pulled in the gangplank and said, nobody behind me is, is going to come along. Some people say he's a twin of Antonin Scalia, um, that is actually not the case. They're both conservative, but they have different views of their conservative visions of the Constitution. And it is the case that Clarence Thomas has been quite independent-minded in creating an entire jurisprudence around his views of the Constitution. And he's just in his early 60s and presuming good health. He will be on the U.S. Supreme Court long after George H.W. Bush has departed this world. And so that is a lesson that we learned in our oral history. As we talk to all of the participants who selected David Souter and who selected uh, Clarence Thomas, is that presidents need to be very careful in those selection processes, as you can imagine. And I list some of the lessons uh, here as well. Now, 1992, so Hal mentioned that for us, that this was a difficult campaign for President Bush. I call it hell to the chief uh, rather than hail. It was difficult for a host of reasons. Now, you might say, well, why was it so hard? You just let, named off all of these triumphs that the president had in foreign policy. In fact, after the quick and decisive victory in Iraq, the president's approval rating soared to 89%, 89%. It was so high, how high was it? It was so high that most of the Democrats who were considering running against him in 1992 stood back. 
and said, this guy's unbeatable. I'm, I'm not going to throw myself into that race. I'm not going to be the Democrat who runs against George Bush. He's got 89% approval rating. I don't think so. One Democrat came forward. <laughs> Bold Bill Clinton from Arkansas. And of course, he got the nomination. And then, as Helm said, they are joined by the amazingly crazy Ross Perot. And do you remember what Ross Perot's number one issue was? Why he said he was in the race? Not education. Deficit. We have a winner. Deficit. Because the deficit, this is why George Bush had raised taxes. The deficit. By today's standards, not so bad, but then it seemed really bad. And Ross Perot, a businessman from Texas, said, we need a balanced budget amendment to the Constitution. We need to require the President and the Congress to create balanced budgets. That is appealing to the American people who, number one, I mean, who here likes to pay taxes? Most people don't like to pay taxes, so they would prefer not to have their taxes raised. So now Bush has got a problem there again. Two, most people try to balance their household budgets, and they see the U.S. budget very similarly, and they can't understand why can't the United States government, why can't it balance the budget? So now Bush has got another strike against him because even though he's raised taxes to try to help the budget deficit, there's still a deficit. And Ross Perot keeps sniping about that constantly, and he gets into the debates. He gets to be part of the debates. Another problem for George Bush, he was diagnosed with Graves' disease, a problem with the thyroid. And it caused him to be very tired. And some people say that that was another reason, that he didn't do as well in 92. A little bit of that spark was gone from him and his campaign style. And then you might remember that in one of the campaigns, as you see here on the left, in the midst of the campaign, he looked at his watch. Doesn't make a good impression. It's like, hey, I'm president. I don't want to be here. I want to get out of here. And the Democrats made hay out of that. And they came up with a poster and a button of George Bush looking at his watch. And the tagline was, it's time for him to go. Now, we found out in the oral history the true story of his looking at his watch. He wasn't looking at his watch and saying, I'm bored, I don't want to be in this debate. But in the rehearsals, Carol Simpson, the moderator of the debate, had said to each man, you will have X number of minutes to answer the question. And that's it, I'm cutting you off. And President Bush had said, we'll make sure Ross Perot knows that because he goes on forever. And so in the midst of the debate, wow, 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 Ross Perot goes on forever, and George Bush is looking at his watch as if to say to Carol Simpson, he's going on too long, cut him off. And that's not how it came out. So television, imagery, you have to be careful at all times. And you saw, as Hal mentioned, that Ross Perot got 19% of the popular vote and took away, we know, a number of percentage points um, from uh, George Bush. So let's start to wrap up and get to our Q&A session. What should we think of Bush's legacy 25 years later?
Well, I think I've given you some ideas to ponder today as you go off to the game, or first I hope go out and look at the Berlin Wall and then go off to the game. But to, to think of that, I, the picture that I showed you earlier, I, I loved that from this summer because, of course, these panels are protected, so they have plexiglass in front of them. And when I got home and I looked at my iPhone and I looked at the picture, I could see Mr. Jefferson's portraiture of architecture was reflected in that glass. So here I was looking at the Berlin Wall and seeing the reflection of Mr. Jefferson's university and his buildings and his architecture in the front of it. If you put those two things together and you think of George Bush in that way, you think of George Bush representing and supporting democracy throughout the world and replacing the tyranny in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union with democracy, and indeed trying to push back the tyranny of Saddam Hussein. I think that this summer was a key turning point for his legacy. And as a person who studies the Kennedy presidency, I was particularly uh, interested and intrigued by this. Every year, the John F. Kennedy Library Foundation gives a Profile and Courage Award, named, of course, for President Kennedy's Pulitzer Prize-winning book of the name, Profiles and Courage. And they give it to Democrats and Republicans alike. It is to someone, given to someone who has exhibited courage in the public arena in politics. And this year, they gave it to George H.W. Bush. And you might say, well, he's turned 90 in June, and they're just being nice to him. They gave it to him for a specific decision he took in his presidency, and it was raising taxes, compromising with the other party, having to try to compromise within his own party and paying the price, perhaps paying the price, the ultimate price of the White House. And so I think that's important to remember and the legacy that lives on. So the two young people pictured here, of course, President Kennedy, no longer with us, his grandson called Jack, Jack Kennedy Schlossberg, presented the Profile and Courage Award to George H.W. Bush's granddaughter, Lauren Bush, who married, I believe, Ralph Lauren's son, so she's Lauren Bush Lauren. <laughs> and uh, the two new generations, two generations on from their grandfather presidents, uh, I think that says a lot in, in today's world where everything seems so stifled and stifling and partisan and mean-spirited. So I thank you for being here today. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, any questions you might have and go who's. <laughs> Sure. I will repeat the question. Yes, back here in the back. So the, the question is, some would uh, look at the legacy of George Bush and say the following, great man, great character, poor politician. I would say from our research and from our oral history and from all the work that I've done in looking into his background in presidency, uh, that most people obviously who worked for him would, would disagree, but I can see their point. And that is that he was very good at retail politics, one-to-one, -one, a smallish group such as this, 
a wonderful person, wonderful, and Helm is agreeing with me because he has met him and knows him, and I know some of you have also said that you've met with him. Just a lovely man, a lovely New England gentleman is how I would describe him. And sometimes his gentlemanliness worked against him in the campaign realm. And by that I mean the following. His mother, who was a very strong influence on his life, taught him not to put himself first. Gentlemen don't draw attention to themselves. And one of my colleagues in, in the book that we have here today, as you see it here, uh, it doesn't actually have that on the... Maybe we could sell in the bookstore one of the... Little, put a little sticker that says, Go Who's. But um, some, some people would say about George Bush, he was even averse to using the personal pronoun I. And then that made for some very bizarre syntax. Remember Dana Carvey on Saturday Night Live imitating? Not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent. He wouldn't say, I'm not going to do it. He'd say, not going to do it. Went to Texas with Barr. Got a shotgun house. Went into the oil business. He wouldn't even say, I went to Texas with Barr. I lived in a shotgun house. I made my fortune. And as you can imagine, that's very unusual in politics and among politicians. So if you've got Bill Clinton, and it's all about Bill, let's face it, that is just totally different. And the other is this, in terms of personality, I have a, a good friend, in fact, was a fellow with me at the Supreme Court in the mid-90s, and she worked in the White House Counsel's Office for Bill Clinton, selecting Supreme Court nominees and other lower judicial nominees. And she said, for all of Bill Clinton's faults, he would walk into a room and it would light up. The man is charismatic. In contrast, she said, Al Gore walked into a room and all the oxygen would be sucked out. <laughs> I would put George H.W. Bush between those two to answer that question of, of him as a campaigner and as a, a person. So individually good at retail politics, less good because lacking in some of that spark and charisma of an FDR or a Kennedy or a Reagan and a Clinton. Yes? Was the uh, entrance of Ross Perot, was that just purely ego on his part? Or was there bad blood between the families and he was a sabotage? Yeah, as I recall in the, in the Texas political world that we still see uh, has many issues uh, and, and fights, and I'm sure in the oil business, too, the conflict. So I think there was some of that. Uh, and then remember, uh, Ross Perot was so crazy that he got out of the race and then got back into it. So he just kept everything roiled up. And, and, and so, but I think he has an ego the size of Texas, to be sure. So I, I think it was a combination of both. Yeah, good question. Yes. Right, so the question is, uh, in his tenure as uh, Director of Central Intelligence, as that position is officially called, or we just call it Director of CIA, and this gentleman remembered uh, George Bush, George H.W. Bush, coming to the University of Virginia to give a talk before he was Vice President and being uh, heckled and shouted down by people who were against the CIA. Um, 
I don't know that on the campaign trail he encountered that. It may have been by the time he was running for president that that was far, that tenure that he spent in the 70s uh, in the CIA was far enough in the distance that it, particularly on a college campus or on the grounds as we say here uh, that those who were who would be college age wouldn't have had perhaps the the same knowledge as those earlier when he was here before he was even vice president. But I do think about his tenure in the CIA during the 1970s and remember how people were viewing the CIA at that point, that we were at the very crest of the wave of anti-government that really starts with, I think, the, the negative vision of American government and politics and distrust of government and politics really starts with the first Kennedy assassination and goes all the way through Watergate with Vietnam right in the middle and the issues related to foreign defense and intelligence policy. Remember, you have the church committee in the Senate investigating the CIA in the 1970s for possible complicity in or even leadership of the assassination of President Kennedy. So people's views of the CIA at the time George Bush was the director of it, uh, very, very negative. Uh, and it's, it's pretty amazing that someone would even have agreed at that time to become director of central intelligence. There's also one other little interesting historical wrinkle to that story. And that is that some have said that Don Rumsfeld wanted to be a candidate for vice president when Gerald Ford ran in his own right, and we know that ultimately he picked Bob Dole, but that um, moving up the ladder at that time was one Don Rumsfeld, and that he was hoping to get the vice presidential nomination, and that he thought the front runner was George Bush. And so he begged that George Bush be made the director of central intelligence to kind of get him off the possibility that he would be a vice presidential candidate. Now, we have interviewed Don Rumsfeld uh, for the Bush 43 project, and all of those are kept confidential until they are released uh, in probably two or three years. So I can't comment on that. Uh, but it is something to keep in mind, as, as I say, an interesting uh, turn of history, and one that if that was the case, it probably helped George Bush in the end. Because I think by the time he ran, as I say, in 88, uh, he, I don't think he was hurt by having been head of the CIA. Final question. Call for the final question. Yes, sir. Oh, great question about the friendship that has developed between Bush 41 and Bill Clinton, and we should say Bush 43 and Bill Clinton. I don't know if any of you saw last Monday uh, on C-SPAN. I just happened to tune in in the evening and saw a discussion between Bill Clinton and Bush 43 at the museum. Go on C-SPAN. It's a fascinating discussion between the two of them. And I would say, uh, as a Kennedy scholar, the two of them remind me of Joe Kennedy Jr. and Jack Kennedy, with Bill Clinton being the, the all-American boy who is the one who's the, always in the forefront, and, and he's sort of the, the Joe Kennedy 
Kennedy Jr. golden boy, and George Bush 43 plays the Jack Kennedy role in these discussions where he's the, 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 the one who's coming up with the one-liners and people are laughing and he's, he's acting like he's not taking things very seriously. So it's really odd bedfellows, isn't it? Is it not? With Bill Clinton in the middle between these two Bush generations. And so to your specific point about the friendship that developed between 41 and Clinton, particularly after the way Bill Clinton won the, the 92 race, and then we know what happened in his presidency, and yet he gets a second term, and a man with the character of George H.W. Bush does not get a second term. I think Barbara Bush is, is still upset about that. But given the personality that I explained about Bush 41 and what his mother always told him, be the gentleman, I think when it comes to things like uh, working on the tsunami, in the aftermath of the tsunami, presidents, in addition to sort of the corollary that I began with, that presidents among the general public usually rise in public approval ratings, presidents who've run against each other, maybe defeated one another at some point, tend to let that go and become friends and colleagues and work together for the good of the nation and oftentimes the world. So I think that's a good positive point to end on today. And again, thank you so much for your wonderful attention and your questions. <laughs>